And hello everyone, I'm Talisha from the Progressive Podiatry Project. You're joining us for the Sunday Roast. Today I'm joined by Kirsty, the Lifting Pod, and Aaron Wilson from Aaron Wilson Rehab. So just a little bit of an introduction because this is the first episode with all three of us on board is I am the director of the Progressive Podiatry Project, a continuing education platform for podiatrists, primarily in the area of musculoskeletal podiatry. And I've been a practicing podiatrist for around 15 years now. And for about 12 of those years, I've had a special interest in musculoskeletal podiatry and physical rehabilitation of more chronic and complex presentations. And so I'm just going to throw over to Kirsty from The Lifting Pod. And Kirsty, can you introduce yourself? No worries. Thanks, Talisha. So, yes, I'm Kirsty. I'm from The Lifting Pod um, on my Instagram link. Um, but I also am the director of Imperial Podiatry in Queensland. So we're just a mobile podiatry home visit service um, delivering all aspects of podiatry. Um, the, I guess, real passion for me to go into podiatry was just due to the fact that I love sport, I love exercise, and I have a history in um, track and field. Uh, also, just love the fact that we can take away um, or assist with pain um, relief, and that's the main motive for, I suppose, my treatment pathways um, and working together with clients to be able to give them a better quality of life. Um, and podiatry is just so much more than what meets the eye. It's not just, you know, cutting toenails. And I think more and more um, people are becoming aware of the fact that we do actually treat from, you know, the hips all the way to the toes. And it's so complex. So not one size fits all, but um, yeah, hoping today we can get some um, that misinformation out of the out of the way. So yeah, thanks for having me. No, it's all right. So I'm Aaron uh, Aaron Wilson. Uh, the reason why my Instagram is Aaron Wilson Rehab. So not only am I a podiatrist, I'm studying uh, physiotherapy as well as postgraduate, and hence why the name Rehab rather than Aaron Wilson Pod because it didn't seem right to then have to change it later. And yeah, as you can tell by the rehab, you know, my special interest is rehabilitation, MSK injuries from acute to chronic. Um, so I'm based out in InSync Health, just a clinic out of Marrickville. Uh, we're predominantly working in sports injuries. We do do general everything. Um, and we're also disciplinary as well with physios and ATs. Um, and yeah, as well, just consult online through Instagram in between making memes, if, if you're aware of those. Um, <laughs> And yeah, like, I mean, personal background hasn't done anything too amazing, unlike Kirsty. Um, I did play rugby league pretty much all my life, was lucky enough to represent the West Tigers in their lower grades. And now I'm just the guy who could have made it if I wasn't injured. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, no, yeah, I'm so excited to have, uh, thanks, Aaron and Kirsty. Um, yeah, I'm very excited to have both of you guys here because, yeah, like Aaron with his interest and history with football, Kirsty with her history with um, competitive track. I have a history of just being the perpetually injured runner. Uh, so haven't competed in anything amazingly on a yeah competitive level, but distance running is kind of my jam that I've discovered over the last few years. And it's something that I quite often injured with, but it's not usually related to training errors which at some stage we will discuss it's usually my lack of spatial awareness and just being unlucky in the house <laughs> that causes my injuries that I have to rehabilitate myself from. Now the whole purpose why we've all come together is essentially we're forming 
what we call foot pain explained. So it's not just for health practitioners, but it's also for the general public because all three of us have quite a large presence on social media with all of the information that we're sharing and what our platforms are aiming and hoping to achieve. And like anyone who's on social media, yes, it's a great avenue to access information, but with the increasing presence of social media and how much people are utilizing it, there is also an immense amount of misinformation that gets shared on there, whether or not it's intentional. So people are just sharing their biased opinions or it's just people or practitioners that just maybe aren't up to date with where the latest evidence sits. So the whole purpose of this project that we've come together to create is basically to take some of the misinformation that we see popping up on social media, breaking down why it may not be as accurate as it's portrayed, and then coming up with the actual evidence that supports our arguments and the reasoning why we're disagreeing with what's happening on social media. So just a caveat to this, if we do talk about specific posts, we're not attacking or trying to discredit individual people or practitioners. It's the information that we're discussing. It's nothing to do with the individual themselves. And well, there's maybe the odd one or two people that I'm not a huge fan of because I do think that they have a little bit of a malignant interest in what they're sharing. But for the most part, whatever we're discussing, it is purely from an educational standpoint. It's not an aggressive take on any human that exists. We're just here to try and help people help people. So the topics that we're going to be discussing today is we've all picked our latest gripe for the week from whatever's popped up on our own social media feeds. And we're talking about the dirty word that is pronation. And then we're also going to be talking about pronation, footwear, and its relationship to bunion development. And then I'll also be throwing in my two cents worth as far as a couple of recent posts that I've seen from certain bigger influencers regarding some pretty heavy duty misinformation regarding footwear and some of the pathologies that they can contribute to. So talking about pronation, I'm going to throw to Aaron first. Um, give us a little bit of a rundown as far as your weekly gripe for the Sunday roast. Yeah, so I think it's even fair to say it's my however long many years I did podiatry for gripe was introduced in pronation. <laughs> so everyone knows it. Uh, what we think of it is probably different to what it really is, or at least I guess then you could say in my opinion because people tend to have a different opinion. But one of the first things I taught with Gate is the foot hits the ground. It's got a nice high arch. I'll get my foot out. It's got a nice high arch. It's called supination. <laughs> It flattens, it's called pronation, and it supinates again as we walk off. And for some reason, and I'm not sure if you guys have the same experience with uni, I think I was about second or third year where apparently that stopped happening. You just hit the ground like that and plot along and any deviation that was bad. And that's where the, the dreaded word overpronation um, seemed mm. to come from. And everyone likes to say it's bad, leads to injuries. And I've yet to come across a well enough argument where I believe that. Um, and yeah, like that's, that's essentially where the gripe is. So I guess you want me to just keep, keep running with it? It's well, I can. Um, so we've 
all three of us have slightly different levels of experience. So I'm the grandma of the group as far as how long I've been practicing for, but I can very much say, so when we went through university, even then, um, so that was what, 2004, I started studying. So nigh on 20 years, which is terrifying, but yeah, pronation was still considered quite a dirty word then. So too much pronation was bad. And that was back in the era where, um, especially with footwear, the aim of footwear was to be really supportive and to stop overpronation or hyperpronation. And what I've seen very much in sort of the last two decades of podiatric practice and studying is, yeah, there's more and more evidence that's coming out. So lower quality studies, higher quality studies, but all of this research is coming out that consistently shows that pronation is sometimes correlated with the presence of some injuries, but in a lot of injuries, it's not causative. So what that means is basically, yes, some people that sustain these types of injuries, they do pronate, but researchers can't find the link because they're likely isn't one, there's so many other factors that feed into it. There isn't a direct link between that person overpronating or hyperpronating and that causing their injury. And that's where another issue comes from is hyperpronation and overpronation technically don't exist because we can't quantify it. So if we can't measure how much is too much of something, then it, it just, the limit does not exist. Um, so basically with that, so I might pronate two degrees, but for me in my movement pattern, that two degrees might upset things, but there's probably other things that are feeding into it. But for Aaron, he might pronate 25 degrees and not have an issue. So it's very much something that is easily blamed for being a causative mechanism for pathology and injury. And oftentimes that's what practitioners, and it's not just podiatrists, like physios or any other health practitioner, doctors as well, they might go, it's because you're pronating too much that it's causing the problem. Very rarely is that the actual problem. So Aaron, I'll throw back to you or Kirsty, if you have anything that you want to throw into that with your experience. Yeah, I suppose um, going through uni, I think you're sort of taught in a little bit of this, I don't know, tunnel, tunnel vision phase of the paradigms and that's kind of how as your brain you know as you learn um, as a health professional where you get your resources from so I don't know if you guys remember you know you know the root paradigm or you know Kirby's um, you know subtalar joint access and things like that um, but I think that's where it kind of all like took off and I think that would have been like you know the 1980s and then the 2000s of where you know you got a neutral sort of axis but what is neutral because that is so variable amongst you know populations and and then i suppose the question is what is a pronated foot type because for someone that could be a really comfortable position for them so then i would say that is a neutral position because it's comfortable um and it's not as you said it's just a factor um in in their you know um, makeup it's not necessarily a, a bad thing so I think that's just a lot of, yeah, a lot of variance in when the word pronation comes about. It's it's not an isolated, um, you know, diagnosis or anything like that. It's so many, so many different, I suppose, um, avenues we can go down in regards to pronation. But for me, being someone who is, you know, a pronated foot type um, as a kid, I, I actually, I wore orthotics. Um, and as a podiatrist now, I, I don't wear orthotics because I've, 
I've learned to, you know, build up those, um, I suppose, muscles uh, in the layman's terms to, you know, perform at my best. And when I do need, you know, extra support, that's where, you know, Aaron comes in with his awesome, you know, sock rehab and things like that, where, you know, you've got exercises that you can help rather than just putting in something to, you know, cure it, I suppose. But yeah, it's, it's a bit of a tricky one because a lot of people will look at it and want to fix it. Um, but it's not about being fixed. It's about just an observation rather than a diagnosis, I suppose. So, yeah. And that's a really good point um, that you made as far as it's an observation, not a diagnosis. And that's one thing that um, I'm sure both of you will agree on. And it's one thing that shits me to tears is pronation isn't a diagnosis where if someone's told that you pronate, that's your pathology, that's your problem. Like pronation is a movement, it's not a diagnosis. So like we don't mm. tell someone that you supinate and that's the name of an injury or you abduct and that's the name of an injury. Like It's literally just description, a description of movement. So Aaron, just because you're the biomech man and you've got the foot sitting with you, um, can you explain probably a little bit more about why it's actually necessary for gait and like walking gait and running gait? Yeah, so my my big thing with that comes from, so if, if you look through research, especially when they use force plate and data like that with the running, you actually see that most of the force produced into the ground is when the foot's in a pronated position. And now that's my first thing that turned my head uh, in early years of uni is, well, because we're taught, well, the foot's a mobile adapter, it hits the ground, goes floppy, therefore if we hit a rock, we don't stumble, and then the foot goes nice and rigid to push off the ground. But even when you think of other muscle groups, you know, if you're doing a bicep curl, the hardest part of the work is probably at the start or at the middle. When you're at the top and it's in its shortened position, nothing's really going on. You're just kind of there. And it's the same story with the foot. The foot hits the ground. It's, you know, it's generally a bit rigid. And even if it's flat, it's still quite rigid. Uh, people neglect that. There's a lot of bones in here that lock up regardless of whether it's flat, high arched. And when you hit, you know, with gravity, with force, as we're trying to propel, it hits the ground and it's got to continue to push into the ground, regardless, again, whether, like I said, if it's flat and it's that period of time where we're pushing into the ground. And if you want to get flashy and start throwing out um, Newtonian laws, uh, like number three, every action is equal, equal and opposite reaction. To be able to get off the ground, you got to push a lot harder than you're coming into the ground. So therefore the forces from the ground push you forward. And in doing so, that generally happens when you're in pronated position because that's the point in time where your foot is no longer elongating and we're starting to get that stretch uh, contraction and that elastic recoil. And the simplest way to even just physically under, um, view it is if you're to try to jump as high as you could with allowing, you know, in the most natural position, you'll probably find you pronate, you internally rotate, something to that degree. And then if you try to externally rotate everything, really grip your feet out, like twist your feet, have that high arch that we're traditionally led to believe is perfect um, and try to jump as well, you probably find it feels like shit and you don't get really high. And somewhere along the way, it still hasn't seemed to translate to that because um, like we've already spoke about, yeah, everyone just sees this, this foot from behind doing that and go, oh, that's bad, that's, that hurts. And uh, yeah, you just watch any marathon runner, any sprinter, and their foot does that 
and no one, no one bats an eye. Um, and I like what you said about like, it's, it's highlighting, it is a movement and, you know, you could use the same premise for every other movement in the body and it just doesn't make sense. You know, if someone started, you know, walked a certain way, if you started saying, oh, they're an internal rotator, probably go, okay, well, what does that mean? But then someone goes, oh, you're a pronator and it's, uh, yikes, that's, that's an issue. <laughs> yeah, it's all of a sudden associated with all of these bad terms and that probably this is slightly segueing from what we were planning on talking about but it still fits the narrative is like when we see there's two pictures in particular that i hate and they're both related to each other so it's often images people use to advertise orthoses and whatnot where you've got one foot that's just or a cartoon foot or it might be a real human foot by the way it's a picture of the back of the foot and it yeah it looks like it's collapsing in quite a lot and it's over pronating and then they have and it's got the sort of bendy line saying oh you're and it's usually a red line because red's bad right so someone's just standing naturally and then they've got this foot that's rolling in and then the next photo was them standing on an orthotic device and there's a nice vertical green line that that's there and that's often used to I, I think originally when those images were first developed it was probably just a way of sort of trying to communicate something complex quite simply but it's just been bastardized to the point where it has fed into this narrative that pronation's bad and you need to have this vertical or rectus or supinated looking and functioning foot to function okay which isn't accurate and then if we zoom out from that the picture that follows on from that usually starts at the feet but there might be one side of the body that it's all nice and straight and it's all straight lines and then the opposite side where we've got all of our red lines and you've got a foot that's rolling in a knee that's internally rotating a hip that's dropped a shoulder that's dropped and that's often used as a yes you need to have an orthotic to give you this vertical posture and it just so many things and we'll talk about knees and internal rotation another day because it's something I know you two know a significant amount about between sports and powerlifting how much knee valgus and its relationship mm -hmm. to movement yeah we'll get into that another day but uh, have you guys come because I've seen those pictures a billion times in the however long I've been practicing for are they two pictures that you guys see quite regularly popping up yeah, yeah. quite a lot and yeah it's it's funny because what we we failed to realize when we look at them because on paper yeah it looks cute and looks great like okay red bad green good nice little fix but the whole point of you know assessing like gait and foot and all things like that we're moving and with mm. and that's my uh one thing i i don't really follow on to is yeah postural assessment because posture is only as good as how you've held them how you've stopped them so if i look at your foot leg ankle whatever it is i'm seeing it right now in this exact moment the moment you take a step that whatever i've just looked at assessed is out the window because it won't come back because that's that's been left there behind. And the same can be done with any of those photos, you know, oh, look, you're a lot more, you're red here because you know, you're twisted in. As soon as I take that next step or if I position you slightly different, the whole, the whole thing changes. And I can probably guarantee for most people, you can get that perfect green line anyway. Um, mm -hmm. And that's actually something I want to, to ask since you've already said it. So Kirsty, you said you've got a bit of a, a more 
typically pronated foot position and you had orthotics mm -hmm. as a kid. Did it mm. fix it? Funnily enough, it wasn't even for my um, my foot. It was actually for my knee at the time. And I, from memory, I had, it's hard to diagnose myself because that is when I was about 10 years old. So I'm assuming well, I had some sort of, I don't know, Oshkod Slatters or something like that. You know, that age bracket of osteochondrosis. I'm not 100% sure, but I do remember it feeling better. But at the same time, I was, out of them within probably two two or three years so you know what's to say it was the orthotic or was it to say I grew through puberty and built that strength myself you know it's it's a debate probably for another day but at the same time yeah exactly and exactly right though a lot of the is, time you just go oh donated um, here's a yeah. pair of orthotics <laughs> is your, your foot still the similar position probably worse probably worse <laughs> Yep, probably and, more, and probably more um, internally rotated. <laughs> and there's just one point I wanted to put on with that. So none of what we're saying is orthoses are bad. So orthoses, they certainly do have a role as far as altering load. So Kirsty, even for you, it may have at that point in time been what you needed to mm -hmm. change the loading mechanics of the foot when you were walking or running. So I think the point that we're all sort of trying to make, because none of us are anti-orthoses, we all prescribe orthoses, we're just all, I feel, very considered in our prescription of orthotic yeah. devices. Um, so I think what we're trying to probably call more attention to is one, the misinformation surrounding pronation, and then how by health practitioners across the board, and not just health practitioners, like even footwear stalls, for example, um, because some of them do like to upsell inner soles as well. Um, so it's just the pronation, the misinformation surrounding it, what it is, what it's bad for, what it's good for. And then also how very easy it is to blame that and then use that as justification for prescribing an orthotic device. So yeah, I feel that we're probably all on the same page that yes, there is a role for orthoses. And sometimes what we're doing is trying when we're prescribing an orthotic device to control or not, well, we can't really control to alter some of the forces, mm -hmm. which may be pronatory related forces going through a foot for specific injury management scenarios but yeah i just we're all on the same page as far as orthoses aren't bad and pronation sometimes is something that we do address in a script yeah yeah and, sure. and even then like to to back to what i was kind of saying before like when you look at it from the position of forces and what we're doing there rather than what the positions are um You'll, you'll come across that because, you know, the commonly question then I get thrown out in disagreement when I say some of that is they go, well, this person has pain and they pronate and they get pain worse when they pronate. So therefore, pronation is the problem. And because if in their opinion, they stop it, change it, whatever, and they get results, they fixed it. Um, and like talking about it before, it's the position where most force is generated into the ground it's the position where most tendons in the foot are at their most elongated position functionally in gait. So there's a lot of force, there's a lot of length. And, you know, when you look at other injuries and muscles, we know muscles tend to get injured more at that length and position. And they also tend to get injured when there's more force put through them because there's a, a demand that needs to be reached and in a lot of cases exceeded. And that's kind of how, you know, sometimes with it, you don't have to throw the baby out the bathwater and change the whole dynamic. 
by saying, well, pronation is now good, which it is. You just kind of got to like tinker with the lens a bit because yeah, you can make modifications to that, but we're not fixing them or reducing the stress because we've just simply changed the position. We're, we're simply just changing the amount of force that has to be applied to get the outcome, which is essentially just load management, which is with flashier words. Yep, I very much agree with that. And it, um, so just because we'll jump on to the next topic in a minute, but just sort of expanding a little bit on what Aaron said. So, yeah, when people are in that sort of maximally pronated or lengthened position, like there is a purpose for that because our muscle tendon units, their job, how it works in gait is to store and release elastic strain energy, which is the same with the plantar fascia. So we need to have load applied into the tissue. So if you just think of it like an elastic band, so it's got to be applied in there to get that stretch so it can recoil to help propel us forward. So that's the whole purpose of it. So if you're trying to eliminate something that you actually need to have an efficient walking or running gait, then you're not going to have an efficient walking or running gait. So sometimes it's just modifying the load that's happening into a tissue to a point that we can calm it down so the body can adapt so you can keep moving forward. Pardon the pump, but. Yeah, 100%. I definitely, I think I learned that quite early on, I suppose at uni when I think we were on a placement once and a physio I sat in with was like, okay, what do you see the difference between this sort of standing foot posture and then you know when they're walking and, and the answer to me was very simple I was like they're completely different and he's like exactly he's like you can't take you know that standing posture you know what we're talking about that static you know you know SPI you know your foot posture index that you know everyone loves referring to um, and then say that they've got that highly pronated foot because when they're in you know gait and you know you're watching their mechanics and, and analyzing um, those three sort of phases, then it looks completely different. And I don't know about you guys, but I've seen a lot of patients that, you know, statically they look pronated, but then when they walk, they look more supinated. So it can be completely different um, functionally. So I suppose it's like form versus function and, and not trying to treat the, you know, the presentation on a static level because do we stand still for our whole life? No, we walk around and, you know, we sit down and we get back up and going from a seated position, even just to standing, you know, we need those muscles. Um, and I think I've said before to Aaron as well, one of his posts around our anatomy, like the foot is so, I don't know, it's constructed and engineered so specifically that, you know, we have that certain amount of ligaments on that medial aspect for a reason. And that is to pronate. So you've got to have, you know, a variable in there where I suppose it's hard because you have a, a spectrum, I suppose, of, um, of movement and I, and maybe that's why we have this these terms of overpronation and whatnot because people go oh they've kind of fallen out of that that um, um, area or they're an anom anomaly or whatever it may be and so they're classified as different or abnormal but realistically who are we comparing it to are we comparing it to the patient or are we comparing it to a population so I suppose just looking at the patient as a whole and and not um, taking one factor and saying that that's, um, that's what's wrong with them. <laughs> um, because yeah, it's definitely not that way inclined. Yeah, definitely. And it's very much like, is it the fact that someone's pronating or is it the fact that they just normally over pronate and I'm just using that in quotation marks. So do they over pronate 
and that's the problem or is it the fact that they've increased their running mileage by 20 kilometers in mm. one week like it's is it the fact that they have diabetes mellitus it's not well controlled that's contributing to the development of their musculoskeletal pathology there's so many other factors that feed in there that once you combine them all together some may play a part but then they may not but moving on from that because i'm sure in future episodes we're going to do pronation time and time and time again because it's <laughs> just the thing that will never die um but i do want to move on to probably the next topic because they do go hand in hand where so if we've got someone who's pronating and oftentimes there's two things that are used by health practitioners to try and stop this over pronation or hyperpronation and that is orthoses and footwear but there's another little bit of misinformation that scoots out and about regarding footwear and also pronation and also orthoses and that is bunions so what i kind of want to get kirsty to start talking about is just probably footwear and the fact that poor fitting shoes is the be all and end all as far as causing bunions yeah yeah for sure i think it's definitely a latest craze at the moment on social media you know you see <laughs> Yes. A shoe and you see your foot and then you see below it another shoe and another foot. And um, you, you look at it and they're obviously two completely different feet from different people to start with. Um, so it's not a good comparison, but just looking at the shape of a foot and thinking if you put something into it that you're going to get the same shape. I suppose Aaron had an awesome meme a while back about a cone head, which I found absolutely hilarious. Of you know, if you put a was it a witch's hat on your head and yeah. then you come out and you've got this like mega mind head or whatever. Um, so like that's kind of a concept how I see shoes in a way. It's like as if you know, if you put your foot inside this shoe, it's going to come out looking exactly like that. And um, you know, the average person probably you know, I suppose average um, non-sedentary person does, you know, approximately 10,000 steps a day. So the force is going through the foot inside those shoes. Yes, they're definitely great. But is it to the extent where your foot changes shape? Um, and I suppose that's where bunions come into play because there's a big um, area around the idea that the main cause and like highlight on the word cause of bunions is from poorly or incorrectly fitted shoes. Um, so I think it definitely comes down to the fact that I'm not saying that this is not a, a thing because I've definitely seen a fair share of, of feet that, um, haven't been fitted into shoes and have those, you know, lesser toe deformities, you know, the hammer toes, your mallet toes, you've got corns and callus, and that's clearly an indication of the friction in the shoe. Um, but I suppose for me, are we looking at just the extrinsic Sort of factors which is you know the environment the shoe what type of shoe what activity um as i was chatting about before are we getting to know the the, the client and, and what and the patient and what they are actually doing in the shoes because that's a big indicator of i suppose the outcome um for example myself wearing a, a pair of spikes for example i need to wear a pair of spikes to run on a track to perform at my best because it's um, just something that goes hand in hand with sprinting and um, it's the grip and it's the start off on the blocks. It's, it's a lot of things in relation to that activity um, versus Aaron, you know, grabbing a pair of footy boots, jumping out on the field. 
um, he needs to wear those shoes to do that sport. Otherwise, there's other factors that could come into play that we won't go into in terms of injury if he doesn't have that grip. Um, needless to say, I suppose, are those shoes marketed a certain way, maybe to look a bit slender or to look a bit sleek? Then yes, definitely. And there's definitely a negative impact to that. Um, but I would dare to say that it's not necessarily always the shoe that causes the bunions. And that's probably where it'll fold into the next point um, of the intrinsic properties of a bunion. And I'm sure you guys um, all know, went through, went through all that at uni of, you know, your hallux abductor valgus, your HAV, which is a new terminology we use quite a lot. Um, and the intrinsic sort of properties where aren't as heavily weighed at the moment, um, which I think a lot of people are not necessarily just regarding, but, aren't shining a light on, which are just as important as the ill-fitted footwear. Um, so, you know, things such as that sort of short um, second metatarsal or um, that longer first ray um, and those little things that can actually cause that lateral deviation or, you know, where the sesamoids are. Sorry, using my hand because I don't have a foot. So, <laughs> um, you know, where the sesamo sesamoids are. Um, and you know, this displacement of them or all are the sesamoids naturally in that position and therefore there is a genetic predisposition um you know other things as well so it's not always a shoe that is the main factor but you know the actual uh, makeup of the individual um probably could go on but i would dare to say that you know 70 percent of you know hiv um comes from that genetic component so I suppose definitely need a lot more education around shoes and how to fit them because it's obviously not just the, the width of a shoe that can cause a bunion, but also the length um, and the depth. And, you know, there's quite a few factors of a shoe that need to be considered. But um, I don't know, I think there's a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of marketing going on around, you know, if you put your foot into this shoe, it will give you this. Um, and then the turn side to that is um, also that the sort of more flexible um, barefoot shoes that are coming out with the wider toe boxes and things like that to allow for splay. Um, but then again, is it the shoe or is it the fact that the foot already has all these factors that are going to, you know, predispose them to have that bunion and what, what can we do about it before it gets to that point? Um, because I don't know about you guys, but I haven't seen a huge amount of bunions in like teenagers. Um, I've seen, I've seen a fair amount, but I most of the bunions I see are in, you know, that geriatric sort of population of, you know, 40 to 50s. And they usually say, um, you know, my mum has it or my grandma has it or, you know, whatever it may be. So, yeah, I'll, I'll flick to you guys and see what your sort of perception is on it and what you've experienced. So. Yep, no, that was great. Thanks, Kirsty. Um, Aaron, I'll get you to launch into because I know that you've put a couple of yeah. memes and bits and bobs up in recent times. Yeah, so it's interesting to say at the end about the teenager bit because so this isn't uh, clinical experience, this one. This is just a, a, a old friend of mine. Uh, they had bunions since they were a child and um, mm -hmm. were on all the like flashy footwear, wide, you know, stretchy, whatever it is to accommodate it. and you know, people love to go and go, well, oh, well, if we look at primitive ages, they didn't have bunions. Or if we look at us now, we have bunions and we were older and it's because of the shoes. But people still get them when they're young. And it's funny because, mm -hmm. 
when you look at the research, actually, the research is poor in that the correlation is with the width, but there's actually a somewhat evidence that suggests the length is important. Um, and most of the research we do have mm. that links footwear and bunions all talk about the length was the, the significant factor, not the width, which is just a funny little um, bit there. Um, but yeah, my, my big thing is with, with the shoes, they, they can be important um, and I don't discredit that, but people also overly estimate their impact and the ones that you know do genuinely have an effect because of the footwear really underestimate their foot size. So this is something I've had a fair bit clinically. Yep. And it was funny because as a new grade, it was my very first um, bio foot pain, whatever, however you want to address it, patient. It was pediatric and they came in and every test I did, you know, they told me everywhere on their foot hurts. And I was just like, oh shit, what do I do? All right, back to basics, do all your tests. Not a single test brought on pain. And I'm going, shit, like, what am I supposed to do? What do I tell this poor kid who's apparently in a lot of pain all the time? And then just through starting to talk to him and, you know, getting a bit of suggestive history, he turns around and says, oh, I only get the pain when I start to play soccer uh, at school. And I'm like, okay, so what do you do at soccer at, at school? And he goes, oh, I put on my soccer boots. I go, okay, do you know, do you have your soccer boots with you? Like, you know, your sizes or whatever. And he's like, oh yeah, I do. Um, and he grabs them out and they're a size eight. And then I go, well, what, what's your regular shoes? Like, what are they looking like? narrow size 10 um so <laughs> out comes the branding device and yeah he's about a nine nine and a half so he gets the size 10 <laughs> but his mum hadn't replaced the shoes and you know sorry to if that mum ever hears this didn't didn't get the new soccer boots in time and so every time he put them on yeah he had the pain because he was wearing shoes mm. extremely small and i mean i know that firsthand i recently went to the, to the snow and didn't want to pay the rental gear so i got some from a friend and I was wondering why it, you know, they were snug and I got told they're uncomfortable. At the end of the trip, like my foot was killing me. And <laughs> it wasn't until I had to get a replacement because part of my board broke that they, they measured me up. They're like, yeah, what, what size boot are you? Um, so for reference, I'm a size 13 shoe and the boots I had were size 10. Oof. It wasn't fun. And, and those oh, no. are... And, and, yeah. you know, it's those cases, yeah, where, where the footwear can be a factor. And, you know, people will always bring up, they'll go, what about Chinese mm -hmm. binding back decades ago? They, one, they got them at birth, you got to consider, when they had no bone. So it's floppy, mm -hmm. you can move them whichever which way. But that's the other thing. They, they were significantly smaller and they were rigid, you know, stiff shoes that didn't provide that. Now, if anyone's ever worn a knife, they're not that rigid. They're not that hard to push through. Um, the amount of times I've seen people with worn out, just regular joggers, and they've got holes that are stretched, there's movement in those. Now, if they were four sizes smaller and they still had that bunion, I'd go, look, oh, maybe, maybe it didn't help. But there's just two, there's a lot more bigger, lower hanging fruits to deal with than the shoes. And then when you address the shoes, if that was the issue, then probably would have seen a lot better outcomes we probably also wouldn't see these shoes anymore because everyone hates bunions mm. like women's footwear would not have pointed toe shoes or slimmer yeah. shoes if the very thing that every female with a bunion comes into clinic complaining about is having one there's no way these shoes would still be around no one would want to buy yeah. them 
Yeah, it's no very, and I like that you pointed out the um, that there's probably a little bit more weight behind the length of a shoe as opposed to the width of a shoe. And yeah, in because oftentimes, again, same with pronation, same as footwear, it's very easy to blame that one factor. And mm -hmm. but one thing that we need to consider, and this is one thing that I do feel that health practitioners, um, where you've so there's kind of two types of practitioners that exist there's the ones that take on that more authoritative starts with a patient i'm the professional you have to do this 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 and this and there's no negotiation and then there's other practitioners that it's that more shared decision making because mm -hmm. yes for some per people they come in like um both of you were talking about with people sort of selecting what shoes that they want to wear um it we're not not everyone's going to change their footwear because you've got some influencer going your narrow shoes are going to cause bunions which one it's bullshit but two if you have if you're someone that you do have a little bit of a bunion that's developed you're not getting any symptoms it's not affecting any form of your function you're not worried about how it looks you just know that you've got a forefoot that's a little bit wider and a toe that scoots in a little bit if it doesn't impact you at all if you can still wear what you want to wear and there's no issue then to me as a practitioner that's not an issue like where footwear comes into play most of the time in my clinical practice is length is something that very much I feel is quite important and that's addressed. But width with shoes, if someone is symptomatic, then yes, we'll discuss widths in, widths in shoes, whether or not it's symptomatic as far as like musculoskeletal pain or if they're getting callus or areas of rubbing, blisters, irritation, things like that. But it's very much a if it's my approach is if it's not broke we don't need to fix it because again mm -hmm. like pronation footwear is oftentimes blamed for something that it's not necessarily causing so if it's clearly identified that footwear is a contributing factor to whatever the person's problem is then yes i'll address it but i don't think we need to hold a gun to the head of footwear and just go you are the cause of all of the bunions that have ever existed mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So there were two, um, when we were discussing before we came on, there were two papers that, um, Kirsty, you referred to, and one of them is quite recent. Yeah. So I think one was like a 2012 and one was a 2020 paper that talking about the role of footwear in the development of hallux valgus or layman's terms, bunions. Um, can you just give us a little bit of a run, because they're the papers that you uh, came in with, give us a little bit of yeah. a rundown as far as what they found in relation to footwear and the development of onions. Yeah, so it was it's quite hard for them to determine like if it was specifically footwear. So the one um, I think I don't know if it was the 2012 one with Nix or not, um, but yeah, it pretty much just spoke about how the it's actually more to do with the genetics component of I suppose that longer first metatarsal rather than the shoes um, and the population they had as well was quite a few women to be honest um, so they probably had a little bit of um, a little bit more of a, a smaller case study than what was needed so there's obviously all those limitations there but the cross-section between whether it was shoes that caused it or more like genetic component it was quite hard for them to determine which for me is still a successful study because it just rules out the fact that 
you know, um, it's not one way or the other, if that makes sense. It's just a, a, a few um, clinical factors. So it's not just, I guess, the first ray or it's not just footwear. It'll be, as you said, it's, you know, a few underlying features that the patient has. So that's kind of what they came across. And it was not as conclusive around, yeah, footwear being the complete um yeah, the complete cause, I should say, yeah, of HIV. So, but then again, um, I think it, I think there was one article that I've read recently. I think it was a little bit further ago. I'll just have a look. Just made a note. On the, oh. um, sorry. Doing um, NDIS stuff today is really put all the articles in the back of my head, but I did write a few notes. <laughs> did write a few notes. Um, yeah, there was one interesting thing that I wanted to say. Um, oh, yes, they spoke about, um, it's pretty interesting because um, it just spoke about how a lot of people were saying, you know, back in the day when people had to wear like high-heeled shoes, um, I suppose it was a little bit more of that sexist vibe of, you know, you have to be yet yeah, done up. And there's a lot of people saying, you know, when I was 21, this is why my feet are like this now. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, yeah. but um, it said that um, there was a, no, a no correlation, yeah, no correlation to do with, um, yeah, a high-heeled sort of, pointy shoe and the um, outcome of the, the patient having um, a bunion, which I found really, really interesting. I was like, doesn't, I don't know, for me, I, I did sort of feel that pointy shoe, you know, as I was saying before, the pointy of the shoe, you know, you sh your toes do have to like be encapsulated by that. But yeah, there was no correlation whatsoever. So I found that really interesting. I think that was a bit of an older article though. I think it was like 1985. So the most recent one's probably a little bit better. <laughs> It's well, they're all um, good point, and I think it's just really highlighting the the same with pronation. It's like keep going back and forth because they are quite interrelated and very similar results. Where for one person, yeah, footwear may be a potential contributing factor or aggravating factor once it's thrown in with their pre-existing other factors that exist but again it's footwear's not the little evil monkey that's causing all the bunions for everyone um aaron have you come across any papers different to what kirsty was speaking to um in regards to footwear and bunions no um look i've come across the one she's talking about um especially the next one so i've got that one kind of is almost etched into my memory. Yeah. Um, but even then, a lot of the papers that do talk about, oh, there is a connection, they're very poorly done. And if I had mm -hmm. to name and shame them, it comes from, uh, I don't know what country he is, but the researcher Mens, um, who's pretty prominent when it comes to just foot-related research. And yep. the thing with these is a lot of good work. So it's not me saying, oh, throw it all out, burn it to the ground. It's not that. A lot of it is survey studies. And again, not, not saying that they're bad, but there's a time and place. The ones in Bunyan's in particular. So there was one they had about, it was 2002, they had about 1,700, I believe, surveillance. 
And then I talked about, so they were all women, they all were in their 40s and up. And I talked about, okay, well, what uh, footwear do you have? And they gave them images. Now the images started at, you know, a, a normal, like a, a women's pointy shoe to then a, a slightly pointier to then a really pointier. And then it was a slight height to a, you know, uh, the middle between a heel and a, a ballet flat and then the heel. So straight away already, if women, women wear joggers, if women wear thongs, whatever, that was already excluded. Couldn't, yep. couldn't talk about it. And that was what they found. They went, well, oh, well, all these people that have bunions, they all showed that they had these shoes. But then if you also look at it, well, because they had no other option to pick, so they picked the most close to it. And even then, a lot of these people were 67 years old and they're asking them to remember 40 years ago, what shoes did you wear the most? Mm. And... Then you got to think like as well, like these people probably assume that heels or the tidy, tight shoes probably cause their bunions. So they probably looked down their feet and went, yeah, I probably did wear those shoes then, yeah. Yeah, so the validity can be seriously questioned. Um, so I just like, so with the Nyx paper that we're talking about, once it's on the social platforms and we throw it on YouTube, I will put the link to it because it is a free article and it's actually a systematic review. So when people do systematic reviews they basically collate a huge amount well as much as they can but a huge amount of information and go through all of that information and sort of identify the trends with it so with the nick's paper it's titled the characteristics of foot structure and footwear associated with halix valgus a systematic review and it was published in 2012 and i'll just read the conclusion for it because i do think it's a really good paper and it highlights something that well, Aaron was talking about a retrospective study, but self-reported surveys, but I'll read the conclusion, then I'll explain something. So the conclusion was, although conclusions regarding causality cannot be made from cross-sectional studies, that's what I'll expand on, this systematic review highlights important factors to monitor in HIV assessment and management. Further studies with rigorous methodology are warranted to investigate clinical factors associated with HIV. Now, the things that they were talking about with this were the significant factors that were discussed that had more so to do with the development of HIV were greater first intermetatarsal angle, a longer first metatarsal, a round first metatarsal head and lateral sesamoid displacement. And then the results for the clinical factors that weren't conclusive as far as their relationship to the development of bunions was the mobility of the first ray, pes planus, or having that sort of flatter foot type or pronated foot type, and footwear. So footwear and a flat foot are two things that there, even 10 years ago, there wasn't conclusive evidence and it hasn't actually changed really at all since then. There's not conclusive evidence that either of those factors are the main driving force behind someone developing a bunion. Now, when we're talking about cross-sectional studies that they mentioned in the conclusion, so cross-sectional studies, they don't look at people before they've started using something. It's a cross-section. So they just get people where they are at that point in time and see what's similar between it all. And so when it's a cross-sectional study, you can identify correlations. So someone wearing this type of shoe or someone that's got this structure or this doing this activity, you can't determine from those types of studies what has caused something because you weren't there before that activity or footwear or any intervention has come into play. So 
that's what's really interesting. So I just thought I'd discuss those findings from the paper. It's a really good paper. Like I said, I'll link to it. Now, this, I, I do want to scoot on to both of those things. So when we're talking about the results of this systematic review, that was a decade ago, that the results still haven't changed with further pub publications. As far as Pez Planus foot tire and footwear not being a clearly identifiable causative factor for the development of bunions, there's one social media presence that just recently has just developed a significant foot fetish for uh, God. well we know why it's happened because if you're going to create and develop and sell your own shoe then yes you do want to talk about footwear a little bit don't you but one of the claims <laughs> is that having a narrow lifting shoe one is a cause of bunions but two the thing the post that really drove me mental was having a narrow shoe putting pressure on your big toe being a cause of plantar fasciitis so have you guys seen this post yeah i think if you go far, far enough no. through my page there's, there's me my head in front of uh, the identical post that was you know six months ago or whatever however long ago quite a lot quite quite a common occurrence especially the the study i know we're about to talk about okay so there's a number of problems that i have with this study so talking about four foot toe box width and it being the cause of plantar fasciitis the premise behind this post or the message that was being delivered was essentially the pressure on the big toe was decreasing the blood flow in the plantar fascia that led to the development of it so from my memory that was the main point that was discussed in this just beautiful piece of misinformation Aaron, were there any other bits and pieces that were discussed in that or have i summarized what he was talking about quite well and i know that you're quite familiar with the study that was referenced in this. So can you um, just give us a little bit more information on this beautiful bit of garbage that we're discussing? Yeah, so it's, it is pretty much so the I think Yeah, you nailed it on the head that the, the post was about well, like, if your foot's like this, and this is, you know, the ideal, will your shoes do that? Take that big toe all the way across. And because of this one study, now, it didn't go into the study, didn't go into the details or anything. It was just the study. Um, the conclusion was, well, doing that stretches this uh, muscle called the abductor hallucis that runs across the side of the foot and a bit of the underside and compresses on one of the arteries to the foot. And um, so there's quite a lot of issues. One with the, the theory behind that, there's a lot of holes you can put in before you even have to consider the research, but then the research itself. So one of the holes being muscle flow to, um, sorry, blood flow to muscles decreases, um, sorry, the arterial, uh, I mean, how do I, sorry, I'm trying to word it. Sorry. The blood flow present within um, arteries, decreases as it approaches muscles in a lengthened position because as they contract through the skeletal muscle pumps blood is then perfused back out through out of the muscles back towards the heart and that's how you get uh contraction and 
you know, shortening of, you know, muscles. So that alone, you would expect to see that in every muscle. If you lengthened it, the surrounding blood supplies would be somewhat smaller because the volume of blood sits around somewhere within the blood, um, the actual tissue. And, you know, when we think of, well, the pump we get following exercise, it, it works on that, that premise. Um, the other thing being, if that was the case, then that muscle probably should be, you know, it should not exist then. If you think that it's action, anytime you stretch it, it stops all blood flow going to the foot. Sounds like quite a problem. And then when you think as well, yeah. it's not a problem because we all have feet and we don't, we don't all walk around with gangrene. Um, and that's <laughs> the other thing. There, there's multiple arteries to the foot. They measured one. They didn't measure the later branches. They didn't measure the earlier branches. They measured it at one point. So yeah, before you even look into the study, there's, there's a lot of holes to the, the conclusion jump from, well, this study said if I push my big toe this way, this muscle compresses an artery, therefore no blood, therefore pain, shoes bad. There's a lot of, a lot of little hurdles to get before you can even then get to that. And then look at the, when you look at the study, it's like looking at the colander, there's holes everywhere. Yeah, it, it's, there's just, <laughs> it's one of those beautiful bits of garbage that, like you can't polish this turd. It's this like just absolutely nothing that is accurate about it. So like the theory behind it, it just doesn't follow the laws of anatomy and physiology or gravity or like I'm not a vascular specialist, but also just how our vascular system works. Like there is nothing about it that's accurate. And then if we look at the risk factors for the development of plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciopathy is there's so many intrinsic and extrinsic risk factors and for everyone it is very very different mm -hmm. and footwear is one that again from cross-sectional studies like we were talking about earlier is uh, for some people cross-sectional studies in relation to the development of plantar fasciitis um, or plantar fasciopathy has been identified but the quality of those studies again is quite poor and then the factors mm. that determine if it's poor footwear has nothing to do with any pressure being placed on the big toe it's more so to do with the um, height of the heel the flexibility of the shoe how much shoe there is but that factor on its own isn't a factor. It's usually that combined with other factors like your occupation. How much time do you spend standing? How much time do you spend standing on hard floors? So if you're squatting in a shoe that is slightly narrow, it's not going to give you plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciopathy at all. And it just, the mechanics of it don't marry up. So essentially the development of plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciopathy, it's a complex interplay of individual factors and there's no sort of one definitive factor that has been identified to be a causative mechanism for one person. So even biomechanics, it's there's no definitive biomechanical measure that places someone at an increased risk of developing plantar fasciopathy. So if we look at 
Um, so a lot of the studies that they've looked at goes across a broad range of different people. So and we will talk about um, plantar fasciopathy a few times in upcoming episodes, but just harping on the risk factors so I can poke some more holes in this colander dumpster fire that we're talking about is so in overweight so people with a higher bmi overweight individuals and also overweight individuals in an occupational setting having a more positive foot posture index so a flatter foot is more of a risk factor in athletic populations so people that are performing well doing athletic competitive runners essentially um so whether or not it's middle distance or long distance the development of plantar fasciopathy is more so related to a higher arch foot posture and like a varus knee alignment, but that is in combination with wearing running spikes. So it's very much like we're talking about with the other topics that we've spoken about today is it's the interplay of multiple factors that will potentially cause it for an individual, not a narrow bloody toe box. Putting pressure on your big toe is not going to cause plantar fasciitis and that was one other thing that i wanted to poke holes in his argument about so in the post was talking about how yes pressure on the big toe will cause this vascular occlusion so you're not going to get blood supply to the area and it will cause plantar fasciitis if we're talking about actual plantar fasciitis where we've got inflammation um so if we do ultrasound studies where it's contrasted and you can the doppler ultrasound there's actually an increased blood flow in someone that's suffering an acute bout of plantar fasciitis. So even that is contrary to what he's saying. So if you've got plantar fasciitis, according to this post, there's not blood supply there and it's causing it. But if you have true plantar fasciitis, um, when I say true, that's differentiating between plantar fasciitis and plantar fasciopathy. Again, we will unpack this another day. But true plantar fasciitis, you do actually have an increase in blood flow because there's more inflammation happening mm. in the sheath and around the tissues. So one footwear doesn't cause it. Two, you're not going to get gangrene. <laughs> so just I will finish my rant about that. But, yeah, as far as risk factors and whatnot, have you guys ever come across anyone that's developed a gangrenous plantar fascia from wearing narrow toe box lifting shoes? Negative. I love the photo. Well, I can you say were just from experience, so my so I've got you know a, a bigger foot. I've got a wider foot. My lifters are like one of the most comfortable shoes I've ever worn, um, and even then. Like, I'm not going to rip out the insole of it. I don't want to damage my, my shoes. But you just sit your foot on top of it. There's, there's a lot of room when you properly fit your footwear. And, uh, you know, the common thing, and I, I try to educate as many people as I can about it, shoes have a width size. And if you're finding it is a bit snug, there's another width you go up and you, you feel brand new whenever that is the issue still. And there's also shoe stretchers sure. that exist, which yeah. I bought my shoe stretcher. It was more for selfish reasons, but then I ended because I do have quite a broad forefoot. Um, and do have a little bit of a bunion and a tailor's bunion. I also don't have a flat foot. I've got a foot posture index that's just a mishmash of garbage. So I've got a high arch foot with a plantar flex first ray. So if we look at the back of my back half of my foot, it appears like it's a high arch foot. And then if we go from the midfoot to the forefoot, it's like it's a flatter foot. So it's just a garbage foot. But yeah, I 
get the shoe stretcher in can go into a normal width and it's comfortable and mm. the development of my bunions is not accelerating with wearing narrower shoes or anything like that it's just doesn't cause me any pain I can lift in because so I lift in um not that I've lifted for a while I've become a bit more of a running wanker the last few years but when I was squatting and squatting heavy the um innovate fast lift shoes I've still mm -hmm. got my lifting shoes they're quite narrow but I'm not running in them and yeah I stretch them slightly around the first MTPJ and I don't have fine fasciitis my bunion's not worsening from them and it's not an issue <laughs> it's all good I like the point you made though about um I suppose the origin and like the original I suppose pathogenesis of true plantar fasciitis like you can even feel it in your clinical diagnosis of like the heat that sometimes is propelled from a foot and you just know straight away the amount of blood flow that's there so it just doesn't make I know it doesn't make any sense in my brain that it would be the opposite complete opposite comparison of you know the gangrenous foot um yeah which, was, I don't know just it's hard to puzzle together in my brain but um <laughs> so just yeah to, I I, Sorry, you go. Say, so a fun thing, so if you ever read the study, uh, a third of the people involved in it actually got more blood flow to the foot and that artery when they did bring the toe over. So again. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. Uh, it, I really, yeah, I'm glad that we got to talk about that post today because I've been just incensed just from the complete shittery that it was. It's, And again, that's where it's, like I was saying right at the very start of the episode, like I think some misinformation comes from like an innocent place where people just may not have updated their knowledge base in regards to literature and they're still trying to do good. Where my problem with this and quite a few of the foot fetish posts that come out from this particular account, what my problem is, is all of this shit was being splattered out on social media with surprise, surprise, the launching of my own wide toe box lifting shoes. So my issue was I feel that there was a monetary reason behind cherry picking misinformation. So it's essentially someone taking literature out of context and not sharing the full scope of what the information that they were drawing on sharing that to over the course of weeks and months building a narrative as far as this is bad this is bad this is bad i have the fix that you can give me money and we'll come at that and that's one thing and part of the reason why um the three of us have gotten together is not particularly because of that account but because like and with the account that we're talking about there is some information that's come out uh, that that person shares that early in my days when i was lifting because that account's been around for a while was i did find it quite helpful and there was some informative information that came out of that but then over time just the narrative and probably the financial interests that have kind of come about with the development and evolution of that platform it's become a little bit skewed but again part of the reason why we're here having these discussions is 
to try and educate people with where the evidence actually lies. And none of us have a financial interest in what we're doing and what we're sharing here. It's just trying to save people from being bought into bullshit, essentially, <laughs> for the greater good. So we're martyrs. <laughs> um, so basically, if we could, I'm going to throw it to Aaron um, for the topics that we've discussed today. So first up, the pronation being an evil word, um, the bunions, and what we were just talking about as far as shoe width, everything like that. Do you have any sort of final thoughts as far as any of the topics that we've discussed or take home messages that yeah. you want to rattle off before we jump off? Yeah. So like the way I'll, I'll give it like just some quick take homes, but right? the pronation front, is it too much? Is it not enough? You'll never be able to know. Um, there's no set limit. This is good. This is bad. And when you understand that you realize, okay, it's movement. Um, then on top of that, you can't really, you can't go without it. So as much as you want to say, or health professionals will tell you, oh, that's bad. Well, you can't, can't walk without it. It happens. Um, and on, on the bunion front, you know, if, if you thought the shoes are the only thing causing you this bunion, walk around, walk around your foot, foot uh, sorry, your house barefoot for the day. And if you notice no improvement, is it? Um, now I know these things take a lot more time, but by the time most people do get bunions, they're in their thirties or forties. Why did it take so long if the shoes continually stayed the same and just got newer? Um, and if it takes 40 years to get that point, is it such a big thing that you got to worry about? Like you touched on, you know, can you move? Does it hurt? Things like that. A bit more important and relevant. And yeah, as for the, the, the other, your final bit, Felicia, um, I'll probably, I think I have some plans in, in later posts on my own Instagram about lifting and the need for wide toe box shoes. Um, in my opinion, don't. If, if your footwear is a problem and you don't like it, just get new footwear. There's no easier answer than that. I like that. Kirsty, do you have any final bits to throw <laughs> at us in relation to everything we've spoken about today? <laughs> I think at the end of the day, probably the main take home would be that everything is multifactorial. Like it's, there's no one fix and it's not like a one-stop shop that you can, you know, figure everything out in one, one go. Um, I don't know, human beings are so complex that I feel like you, you have, we have all this evidence here to help us um, and to obviously go off. But at the end of the day, figuring out what the, the client actually wants, what's their, what their goals are. Um, and if they're, you know, if they are just browsing on Instagram wanting to be informed, then for them to actually go, oh, would you take advice from someone that you didn't respect um, or doesn't have, you know, that reputation behind them? Um, you know, if you know, someone came to me that was a, um, I don't know, a skier and they were trying to tell me how to ride my bike, I'd be like, well, that's completely different. Like there's, there's no correlation there. So just being mindful of where you get your information from. Um, and if you trust the source, then obviously that's the best place to start. Um, and then, you know, question yourself, like with anything, you know, if you want to improve in something, you're not just going to stay in this one area, you want to get better. So if you think that your shoes, as, as Aaron said, if you think your shoes are the cause, then go research a crap about some shoes and figure out what one's the best for you if you're just browsing on the internet but if you really want to know 
then go source someone who has the, the professional, you know, maybe the experience, someone who's actually lived it um, personally, then they can give you some guidance in regards to footwear. Um, pronation wise, it's a bit tricky. It's one of those things that one, once again, it's just a factor. It's not, as we said before, it's not, um, it's not a diagnosis. It's just a simple observation. And I suppose last but not least, the plantar fasciitis, just, I don't know, there's a lot out there about plantar fasciitis. Um, and I don't know, I don't know about you guys, when someone comes in and they try to pronounce it, you already know that you're in for a, a good consult. So it's just kind of educating and, um, I don't know, honing in on what actually matters. And it's what matters is getting that patient back to a great quality of life. And if you're going from a, from a cost perspective attitude, then you're already in the wrong room. So, you know, I always say, you know, patient first or health first, money second. So if that's not your perspective, then, you know, you, you can't really, you can't really go, can't really go too far because <laughs> money can't buy everything. So yeah, that's, I suppose that's my view. No, I like that. And I very much, that's something I'm very passionate about. And like as health practitioners, it's our vocation. It's how we generate our income. It's our livelihood. But I do feel that as health practitioners, we need to be very mindful of not putting profits before patients. And I think that's where a lot of people yeah, fail in their patient care because at the end of the day, they see the patient as a dollar sign, not what can I do to help the person? Um, yeah, so I'd probably say my take-homes and I'll bracket it out into the take-homes for, say, the general public, but then the take-homes for a health practitioner. So the take-homes for the general public is more of like a, whenever you're going to see a health practitioner, you have the right to ask questions. And if you go and see someone and you have this problem that's developed, whatever it is, you've got pain somewhere, it's affecting the activities that you want to do, whatever's happening. When you go there, if the practitioner asks minimal information or tries to elicit minimal information from you regarding what activities that you get up to, what your occupation is, like so the physical activities that are related to your occupation, so all of these other factors, your injury history, so all these other factors that for most of the things that we've discussed, um, if you're not being asked about that and it's very quickly scooting into pronation is your problem or footwear is your problem, if other things aren't being explored and that's where it's jumping into, that's actually a little bit of a red flag and you have every right to question why is it definitely pronation. Um, so I think just as a yeah, from a consumer and a patient perspective, if, yeah, like I said, if you're seeing someone and they're jumping down the it's your pronation that's the problem pathway straight away without asking further information about all of these other factors that there is more evidence for majority of injuries that develop are probably more of a causative or contributing factor than ask questions. You can push back. You can get a second opinion. There's so much you, you can do. You don't have to take it at their face value. Um, in saying that, not all health practitioners are out to get you or rip you off or anything like that. It's just we're trying to give you some information so you can ask questions to have more informed decision or, yeah, more of an informed place in your healthcare. And then my practitioner points is it's more so raising a little bit of a sort of self-reflection and yeah, self-reflection question, I would say. So 
are you very quick to jump on the biomechanics bandwagon when you've got someone coming in with a musculoskeletal pathology is it okay am i because i'm trained in biomechanical assessments am i looking for some confirmation bias as why the biomechanics are causing the problem I think it's more important and evidence supports this to ask about all of the other factors. So the intrinsic and extrinsic factors will be contributing to it. So if you haven't asked about someone's clinical history, so their injury history, their activity history, their metabolic status, depending on the pathology, sometimes it's not relevant. All of these other factors, if you're not asking questions about that before you jump down the biomechanics and possibly orthoses bandwagon, I would take stock because if that's the practice that you're employing at this point in time, it is actually quite far removed in a number of cases from best practice and where the evidence sits. Um, and not going to go into all of the specific pathologies because we'll do that another day. Um, then look, I don't really need to go too much into that footwear dumpster fire. It's just a narrow toe box isn't going to cause plantar fasciitis. It just, uh, no. Um, so many other factors that will contribute to that. So they're my take-home messages. I am so glad that you guys have joined me today. I can't wait for the next couple of episodes. And for anyone listening or watching, because this is going to shoot out on a number of platforms, if you want to follow me, I'm at P3 Podiatry. This is on the Instagram we're talking about. Um, Aaron Wilson, Aaron Wilson Rehab on Instagram, and then Kirsty at The Lifting Pod. Um, but again, thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you too for joining me. I've really enjoyed the chat and can't <laughs> wait for the next one. Thank you. Cool. Thanks guys. <laughs>